Hello everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the JGI Policy Pulse, brought to you by FIU's Gordon Institute for Public Policy. I'm your host, Leland Lazarus. Cyber attacks know no boundaries. Latin American and Caribbean countries, unfortunately, know this all too well. In 2022 alone, Costa Rica, Mexico, and even Barbados were all hobbled by cyber attacks. And while certain countries in the region have made significant progress in bolstering cybersecurity, many still have a long way to go. Since next month is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, in this episode, we'll talk about the challenges these countries face in cyberspace, the innovative ways they're addressing these issues, and also the efforts to close the cybersecurity workers gap, not just in Latin America and the Caribbean, but in the United States as well. Well, we have our very own Randy Pestana, who is the Associate Director for our Cybersecurity Program here at FIU's Jack Gordon Institute. Randy, thank you so, so much. People wouldn't necessarily know this, but we're actually talking online, even though our offices are literally right next to each other. Yes, Leland, I, I certainly feel a wall between us. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, uh, I also want to make a pitch because just recently, Randy led an effort along with America's Quarterly in order to uh, organize Paradise Hacked, which is America's Quarterly's most recent uh, publication about cybersecurity within Latin America and the Caribbean. And you had an incredible article about all the challenges facing Latin American and Caribbean countries when it comes to cybersecurity. And I just want to start off with a question specifically about that. In your most recent article, you start off with telling or rather telling a story about a cyber attack in Jamaica and how that was a wake-up call for the Jamaican government. Can you explain that story a little bit to our listeners? Certainly. Uh, again, Jamaica had an attack on its prime minister's office uh, and essentially it shut down communications and, and kind of spread messaging related to the fact that they can get into the prime minister's office. And fortunately, you know, the government did see it monitor. They were up very fairly quickly. But it raised uh, the idea that they can be compromised, similar to what we saw in Costa Rica and similar to what we saw in other states, that they too were vulnerable, despite not being at that economic level of, of some other states that were typically the top targets for cyber criminals. So what they did in response was they worked very closely, obviously, with the United States uh, and a number of other entities like uh, USAID, uh, IDB, uh, and a few others. And they invested within themselves to start to stand up their own cybersecurity uh, programs and uh, incident response and a way to essentially build their cybersecurity resilience against future threats. Uh, so it's very fascinating to see that sometimes it takes you being embarrassed in front of your population to actually respond to something. But the Jamaicans, uh, I give a lot of credit to because not only did they seek support from partner nations, but they put their money where their mouth is and they've invested within their own selves. And it's called the Institute for Cyber Excellence or something like that? Absolutely. Right. How much money was that? Uh, between the different entities, you're talking about close to $10 million, $10 million. Uh, that they've developed. Uh, again, the Jamaicans didn't put in $10 million. They've taken out loans 
uh, with the Inter-American Defense Bank. Uh, they did get some funding from USAID uh, and a number of other international entities that are going to allow them to to really build their resilience. Yeah. And I think that story about Jamaica really is a microcosm of the kind of issues that are affecting all Latin American and Caribbean countries and really all countries around the world, right, including the U.S. Um, there's that recent article about how Chinese hackers, right, have actually put code into various critical infrastructure throughout the U.S., right, and could yeah. potentially use it in a conflict we have over Taiwan, right, in order to incapacitate our, our military. Yeah, there's um, no borders in cybersecurity, that's for sure, Lee. No borders in cybersecurity, absolutely. absolutely. Um, but in your view, what makes Latin America and the Caribbean particularly vulnerable for cyber attacks? Well, I think it's a number of things. First is you have an increasing attack surface. And what that means is there's more people in the region starting to come online as compared to, let's say, the United States, where almost everyone's online, right? So the more you have people coming online and they're connecting to a network, that is another access point that a cyber criminal um, can access to be able to take someone's information or get access to more higher uh, sensitive information, uh, particularly at critical infrastructures of these different countries. So as you get more online, which is a good thing, the population is becoming more educated, but are they protected enough? Do they have the cyber hygiene and awareness enough to protect themselves, especially when they get into government-related roles and now they have access to, you, uh, to, uh, to their country's critical infrastructure systems? If they're not protected, if they're not vulnerable, they're not knowledgeable of cyber hygiene, then they're going to automatically compromise the country and the country's systems. Right. So it's that's the first one, the increasing Internet penetration and increased attack surface. The second is they're resource constrained. That's why they're developing states for the most part. And in many of the developing states, they have what we call legacy systems, whether it's physical uh, devices or it's outdated software that no longer has, you know, updated patches and capabilities like that. And that leaves them automatically vulnerable, especially if those vulnerabilities are floating around in the dark web. You can easily pay for it. Um, now in the region, you're starting to see the increase of ransomware as a service organizations that are essentially willing to just be for hire and shut down systems at, at, at a whim. So you have the legacy systems, you have the increased internet penetration, and then you have a people problem, right? You, the reality is, Governments across the region, regardless, left, right, or otherwise, do not have the personnel to operate their systems, and they're not going to have the personnel going forward to protect their systems as they grow technologically, right? And if you don't have the people and you need to educate your whole entire population and make them aware, now you're stuck in a situation where, okay, I have limited resources, I need to hire people now to do the job, but I don't have enough people that can do the job. And second, it's going to be a generational issue because you're relying on these folks that are growing up with technology now in 15 years to come work for their governments versus work for an industry um, and make a lot more money in industry versus serving their government. So it's a big, big people problem. And I'm not sure the region has a solution to that. I'm not sure the, the, the world has a solution to that. What does that look like in terms of the gap? How many jobs are actually required do you have that number it's, it's on so, hand it's so hard to quantify especially mm -hmm. in the region i know there was a report recently for the organization of american states that looked 
at the gap but didn't put a number on it. Uh, anecdotally speaking, you're talking about over 3 million available jobs likely in the world. Wow. Right, in the world. And if you look at developing nations, they that's just you don't know how many you're going to need. Right. You might not even know what you have today, much less what you're going to need in the future. Here in the United States, we have over 650,000 job openings and we can't even fill them. And that's the United States. Right. So what does that say for other developing nations and how do we as the United States are able to support them, especially if you consider it in vis-a-vis what the Chinese are doing to support the region as well? Yeah. And you actually just mentioned how Chinese entities are entering the cybersecurity space in the region, right? Um, think Huawei, ICT mm-hmm. Academies. Um, but also in June, the cybersecurity firm Mandiant reported that a PRC-linked hacking group actually hacked into businesses all around the world and that 55% of those hacks happened in Latin America and the Caribbean. But then, of course, you have the Huawei Academies providing ICT training how do you think Latin American and Caribbean governments view Chinese involvement in cyber? Uh, it, are they, what's the good, the bad, and the ugly? Are they the good guys or the bad guys? How do they view it? Well, I, I don't think they see it in the good guy, bad guy content as much as, you know, maybe the U.S. or even the Chinese would want to see it, right? But I think they see it as they have resource problems. Uh, they need satellite technologies. They need communication technologies. Um, They need all sorts of hardware and software capabilities. And frankly, if the Chinese are willing to offer those things, and sometimes much to the disadvantage of those countries uh, when doing these agreements, they need it, right? And what I'm finding is in the region, you're starting to see at the state level or the department level, not even at the federal level, governors and mayors are reaching out to to the Chinese to request technology because they have a city to run or they have a state to run and they need to be able to respond to their population. And the federal government, as you know, does, does not move as quickly uh, as compared to the state or, or local level. So they're going directly to the Chinese and asking for the support. Now for the Chinese, it's great because again, you're creating levels of influence that are gonna allow you to be a partner uh, over the long term, especially in these critical areas like ICT or in e-commerce versus the US, which is frankly not competing there because one, it can't compete dollar for dollar, but two, um, it takes a lot, we have a lot longer bureaucratic process to be able to exchange that kind of uh, uh, capabilities. So, So I think regions and the region in general is very favorable to the Chinese. They see the Chinese as an asset. Um, I I not necessarily sure that a lot of these agreements are looking at the long term impacts that that might create, you know, the the second and tertiary effects of signing these agreements with the Chinese. But regardless, someone needs to support the region. uh, And if the Chinese are there offering these services and these capabilities, of course, the region is going to take it. And I'm not ignorant to that fact. You know, we have actually spoken about this uh, a lot when we actually wrote uh, an op-ed together, right, in Global Americans about cybersecurity. And, you know, one thing that's always stuck with me that you said, which is that we have all the right things in place, right? There are so many different organizations already working in the cybersecurity training space, uh, partner nation capacity building and cyber training. Right, so you think uh, CISA, the Cyber Security and Infrastructure 
security agency. You've got OAS with their cybersecurity training. Um, you've got U.S. Cyber Commands, but then also various uh, U.S. National Guards through the State Partnership Program. They also provide cybersecurity. Uh, and of course, the White House uh, came out with their cybersecurity strategy and uh, also a cyber workforce strategy, which I understand that um, you and and your um, incredible, incredible um, programming was highlighted in that as well. So that's really, really amazing. Thank you. But there doesn't seem to be an overall coordinating or coordination effort. And so if you were to give a scorecard for the U.S. Uh, as a cybersecurity partner for Latin America and the Caribbean, what score would you give it and why? I'd give it an incomplete. Uh, and I know that's not the grade that you were looking for, but the reality is it is incomplete for a number of reasons. I think because the U.S. is doing a lot and what you and I wrote was really about this need for a coordinating body, someone that's be, someone or some organization that's able to kind of be pinpointed as the lead and coordinate the all the different international capacity building efforts that are actively ongoing to avoid levels of redundancies or inefficiencies in spending uh, and, and, and things of that nature. So I think it's incomplete because they're doing a lot of really good things and supporting the region in many ways. Uh, maybe it's not communicated as well as it certainly could be, but that doesn't mean that they're not doing anything, right? So to give them a poor grade because of the communication issues is not good. And then the other reason I say incomplete is because you're starting to see different movements, right? You mentioned the national cybersecurity strategy that came out in March. Even more recent to that came out the implementation plan of that um, national cybersecurity strategy. And if you look at that fourth pillar, the forging international partnerships, mm -hmm. The implementation plan does a really good job of pinning the rows on the State Department Cyber Bureau, and it's going to be up to Ambassador Nate Fick to really take the lead in bringing the different entities from across USG, but also across partner multilateral organizations or partner international organizations uh, around international capacity building. And I think this is a good step forward to really solving the problem that you and I, Leland, talked about, which was you need a point. You need someone to coordinate all this. You need to make sure that the left hand is talking to the right hand when you're going down to the region and supporting uh, our partners across across the hemisphere. So uh, I think they're in a step in the right direction. I think we're doing a lot of good. I think it's how you package it all that's really going to make that score either an A or we're going to stay in a kind of C's get degrees kind of level, right? <laughs> you want to be in that A uh, mode, but right now it's incomplete. We got a little bit more work to do, but we're on the right track. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not one of those kind of exams where you, everybody has to work alone, right? And you, yeah, exactly. In this case, you can kind of cheat a little bit by, uh, you know, looking at what some other countries are doing. So in that, in the case of Latin America and the Caribbean, you know, Canada, for example, provides oh my God. some cybersecurity uh, training to the region, right? Yeah. A lot of cybersecurity yeah. training to the, the region. The Canadians are incredible. Uh, and the work that they're doing, especially with the organization of American States, mm -hmm. is, is um, arguably the best in the region. Wow. Uh, you look at what Incibe, uh, in Spain, out of Spain is doing to support mm -hmm. the region and training. You look at what Interpol is doing to be able to prepare law enforcement across the region. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. And there's so many different organizations. What the UK is doing in the Caribbean, 
right? Mm. Uh, not just for co former Commonwealth nations, but also for general Caribbean security. There's so many different entities that are doing things, and it's really a matter of identifying who those are and making sure that they're talking to the other entities. And then most importantly, um, it's the tree falling in the forest anecdote, right? We need to let the world know we're doing this. Yeah. Um, because if no one knows about it, out you're making impact, but you could be making much more impact uh, because what it says is there's a call to action. Oh, if you're not coming in and helping out, where are you? You need to come in and be that group member that doesn't do anything for the project. That now there's pressure on that group member to come in and do something for the project and help you get that A. So, so I think the communication aspect is something that. Uh, all countries need to really work on, especially the United States. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, you know, let, let alone international collaboration and cooperation on cybersecurity. I mean, even within the U.S. interagency itself, right? I mean, we were joking about how a U.S. Um, agency that shall not be named, um, sometimes the, the folks on the second floor doesn't know what the folks on the third floor are doing, and they're both working on cyber issues, right? Yeah. No. Um, or, or you'll have, yeah. or you'll have one agency sending down a team to do cybersecurity in a certain country, not even knowing that the next week, you know, another U.S. agency is doing another kind of cyber training, and so we we have no idea really to what extent is that cyber training redundant, or was there a way to have planned it in advance so that you know, one agency is is teaching, you know, chapter one and two of that cyber training, and then the next agency is chapter is teaching chapter three and four. You know what I mean? So that there's cohesiveness. No, you're absolutely right. That goes to the larger communication issues mm -hmm. uh, internally. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the we we talk a lot um, in USG about whole of government efforts, and, and and again, it's not for lack of effort. I think there's a lot of goodwill and a lot of really smart and intelligent people that are working closely to try to fix the communication issues. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, each of our different organizations have its has its own unique mission. Even though it's the U.S., mm -hmm. each entity has its own unique mission and they're responsible for that said mission. And it's a balance between I have to do my job versus how much do I slow down on doing my job to make sure that I communicate it to make it more uh, efficient and effective by working with partner institutions. Right. And and it's not always easy uh, in the day to day, especially once you have uh, points of conflict. Right. Um, you, you think that Haiti, Haiti earthquake. Right. There was so many different entities that wanted to help. And then finally, the you know, you had the White House had to step in and say, OK, well, we need to kind of come together and do this and everybody work together. We got to figure this out now. Mm -hmm. um, so, so those kind of scenarios really do this. And in the cyber realm, it's interesting, not just for coordination of international capacity building, but also what happens when a partner calls you like Costa Rica and says, hey, we can't get into our systems. Now you have the, the notorious no foreign issue where yeah. you can't even share oftentimes openly available public information with partner nations, right? Uh, but that speaks to the larger overclassification issue that we have here in the United States. But having forums and institutions that allow us to share information at real time is critical, especially when a breach has just occurred. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit because you mentioned earlier just the massive gap in the workforce required to do cybersecurity, uh, not just 
in Latin America and the Caribbean, but also in the United States and elsewhere. And I understand that you lead this effort in terms of cybersecurity training, both in the United States and uh, abroad. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, even even for students, I understand, right? Cyber 502. Can you explain uh, just a little bit of all the different cybersecurity training programs um, that you lead? Sure. No, again, I, I've been blessed in the ability to, to be able to give back uh, to the different varying communities uh, that, that really matter. And cybersecurity is a field that you'll never have enough information. You'll never have enough capabilities. So the only thing you hope to do is inform as many people as possible and educate them to the point that they're now able to protect others as well. So at FIU and the Gordon Institute, we do we do quite a bit. Um, the the camp that you referenced was the 502 project. Uh, for the techies that are listening to this podcast, don't know that 502 error means it's a gateway entry issue. Uh, and what that means is if you go to a website, you'll see a 502 error. You can't get into the website. Uh, and that usually means the server's been overwhelmed or, you know, the system's gone down or something to that effect. But what we found was there is a 502 gateway error uh, into getting students into cybersecurity. And not just that, getting students hired into cybersecurity roles at the entry level position. So what we did was with the support of National Security Agency was built a program with the University of South Florida that takes high school kids, prepares them with the fundamental information to be good digital citizens and also kind of coach them through the process of going from student to employee and the different work-based learning approaches that allows them to do that. So we had a week-long camp. We did a simulation exercise. Uh, we were able to give away free laptops to kids. Uh, again, we did this at Miami Senior High School, which, uh, again, doesn't have a lot of resources for technology. And many of the kids uh, came away with a laptop, and that's their first personal device that they've ever had. Oh, that's uh, awesome. uh, so so those are things that make you uh, feel really, really good. Now, one of the the, the 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 programs that we have is called Cyber Skills to Work. And this one was near and dear to my heart, which was how do we get transitioning military personnel and veterans and best prepare them for cybersecurity careers? Because mm -hmm. what I found was many people are leaving the military and, and thinking, well, my skill set only translates to being a police officer or a firefighter, um, or you, you're going to spend your full GI Bill or take out a bunch of student loans to get an education in a field that you're not entirely sure of. So what we did in partnership with uh, 11 other institutions around the country, uh, this efforts led by University of West Florida is we take them, we prepare them in cybersecurity and try to help them transition to, to cybersecurity roles. And the way we do that is providing a baseline masterclass so that if you only know how to turn on a computer, you will now learn how to turn on a computer, access your administrative rights, understand the key terminology and capabilities, uh, set up virtual machines and, and a little bit of technical stuff. And what it does is it gives you a taste because when you leave the military, it's just as valuable to know what you don't want to do as what you do want. To do. So mm -hmm. let's say I take this program and I hate it. Well, I've now become a good digital citizen because I got at least a base level awareness, but I also know I'm not going to spend my GI dollars or take out loans on a cybersecurity career because it's just not for me. Right, right. The inverse of that is, man, this is really cool. I want more. And then we have more advanced courses 
uh, that you can take there. And it's free of charge to veterans. And that's uh, because of the support that we get from the National Security Agency to do and, that. And, and I'm that sure was the program that was highlighted in yesterday's National Cyber Workforce and Education Strategy that was released by the White House. Nice. And I'm sure, if nothing else, it just boosts cyber hygiene, right? It is absolutely it's become more aware of everything. Um, also, of course, um, can't forget to mention the National Initiative for Cyber Education. Yep. Um, and that you, you and your team organized that big conference out in Seattle, Washington, where you brought together you know hundreds of cyber experts to share best practices. Yeah, no, FIU, we've certainly been uh, humbled. We were asked uh, in 2018 uh, to lead the, the, the NICE conference uh, yearly. Uh, we have since been renewed for an additional five years, so I think we're doing something right. <laughs> um, but yeah, we held the conference in Seattle. And, and the great thing about that is doing to what you and I talked about, which is bringing in all the different stakeholders so that they can share what they're doing. And NICE serves as that community for folks to share what they're doing and understand, hey, you're working on this, I'm working on this too, let's partner together. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's how the Cyber Skills to Work program came together. We're at the NICE conference, we're talking about, I wanna support veterans. Oh, I wanna support veterans too. Well, let's come together, let's support veterans together. Uh, so the NICE conference is really that key convener in the United States uh, that, that we use for that. And then, you know, we've since expanded that to international outreach, right? So if you look at, the work that we're doing in the Balkans, like North Macedonia and Serbia, really trying to support them and building out their own workforce frameworks that allows them to, you know, prepare the next generation of cyber professionals, but also protect their critical infrastructure systems. And then obviously in Colombia, uh, they're doing a lot, but I had the uh, honor to go down to Cartagena for the UNITAS exercise. And what's fascinating about this year's UNITAS, uh, which is a big naval exercise, is this was the first year that they had a cyber component uh, as part of the exercise, and it was Colombian-led by the Colombian Navy. And what they did was a hands-on capture-the-flag competition, and it was a phenomenal, phenomenal exercise. And that shows that there is regional leadership as well, and it's not just a U.S. doing something or China doing something. There are great countries in the region that are, have these capabilities, and they're supporting other partner nations' capabilities. And I was happy that we were able to go down there, provide our, you know, assessment of, of the exercise and ways that it can be improved, and 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 think of ideas to collaborate further together. Uh, and that and that's just some of the really cool stuff that we've gotten to do uh, over the past few years at the Gordon Institute in the cyberspace. That's awesome. Um, I've got just two more questions left. One is, just tell me a bit about yourself. Like, how did you get into the cyber security? industry? Well, you know, cybersecurity is unique because most people that are in cybersecurity roles aren't traditional cybersecurity technical people, right? Um, the, the term cybersecurity in U.S., you know, government officials, mouths didn't even exist in the 1990s, right? So, so everyone kind of transitioned uh, to cybersecurity, and my story is not any different. I was a traditional security person. I was focused on Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala, looking at air quotes, sexy stuff like gangs and drugs and, and you know weapon trafficking and things like that. And what I started to notice as the years went on was that non-physical threats were starting to become an issue, particularly as the region was coming more and more online. 
And it became so prevalent that you couldn't ignore it. And I think I had an aha moment. And when Brian Fonseca, the director of the Gordon Institute, and I came here in 2015, we had a conversation of cyber is going to be a growth area. We're seeing it everywhere. So let's start looking at it. And, and, and my philosophy with cybersecurity is you'll never learn enough. So you treat it like eating an elephant one bite at a time. And I took a visit to New York and went to Morgan Stanley's Security Operations Center. Uh, and if you know anything about financial sector cybersecurity, uh, those organizations are the top of the top and their information sharing platforms and groups are, are top of the line. And as I'm there, I'm looking at their board of vulnerabilities and looking at where it's targeted. And three of the five countries that were targeted the most were in Latin America and the Caribbean. Interesting. Right? So that was my aha, I get it moment to say, yeah, this is bigger than I really thought in the region. I thought this was you know, going to be just a US issue or a China issue or a Europe issue. And I was wrong. Um, and I think that's when it really turned in my mind to say, let me really look at this holistically and not just from a U.S. centric or a Chinese centric perspective. Uh, and once I did that, I really got into it. And uh, I've been doing cybersecurity ever since. And uh, I'm glad that you've come on board to alleviate some of the other traditional security stuff uh, that, that I did. But uh, I'm, I'm really excited to to focus on cyber and then bring in my love of Latin America into it and kind of merge those two two things together. Finally, uh, I always want to end with asking guests, um, what's a good book recommendation that they have? You know, what what, what book has you have you read recently that you would suggest to the audience? Well, well, two shameless plugs before I go to the to the specific book recommendation. But the first is please read the America's Quarterly article that I that I authored and, uh, you know, Paradise Hacked. It's, it's a phenomenal edition. I think it's something for the region that is really under discussed. So, so certainly that. Uh, and then the National Cyber Workforce and Education Strategy that came out yesterday. Those are easy ones. But a book that I'm working through now um, by a good friend of mine, Max Smeets, called No Shortcuts, Why States Struggled to Develop a Military Cyber Force. And really what this book looks at is all the things that have hindered the ability of states to develop offensive cyber capabilities. Um, and, and if you think about a world of uh, deterrence, particularly cyber deterrence, the ability to have your own offensive capabilities really serves as a deterrent to further protect you, your country, and your critical infrastructure. So Max Smeets did a great job so far. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, I, I can't recommend it any any more than I already did. No shortcuts. Um, Randy, thank you so much for your time. This was super informative and I can't wait to have you back on uh, in the next coming months. Thanks so much, Leila. I appreciate you having me.